The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your Chest podcast host. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a fascinating discussion on vaccine mandates. We are very fortunate to have Mr. Eric Fraser and Dr. Michael Noyce as our guests. They wrote an article for the Chest Journal, Who Calls the Shots? A Legal and Historical Perspective on Vaccine Mandates. Mr. Frazier is an attorney. He's a partner at the law firm of Osborne Maladon in Phoenix, Arizona, where he specializes in appeals and constitutional law and other major legal issues. He earned his law degree and MBA from the University of Chicago. And Dr. Noyce is a hospitalist and assistant professor of clinical medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to medical school, he also completed a PhD in the history of science and medicine at Columbia University. And his current research is on the history of the electronic health record, but he more recently began work on projects related to COVID. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Dr. Winter. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So this is a fascinating topic and one that's highly relevant to the current times. So why did you decide to write about this? The paper really grew out of a series of conversations that Dr. Noyce and I have been having throughout the pandemic. You know, debates have been raging all over the country about vaccine mandates, and many people wanted universal nationwide COVID vaccine mandates and were frustrated that the president or the governors of their states did not impose a broad mandate. But other people were really outraged by the idea of vaccine mandates, and they thought that these mandates were unprecedented acts of illegal government coercion. But these debates seem to be completely disconnected from both the legal issues and history. So we wanted to explore that disconnect and really put the COVID vaccine mandate in its proper context, both legally and historically. You know, Dr. Noyce is a physician and a historian, and I'm an attorney specializing in these kinds of major legal questions. So we thought we could collaborate together and contribute something from all of these domains. To piggyback on that, we had an opportunity to provide some important context to debates about vaccine mandates. And as a historian, um, I'm personally very excited about the opportunity to provide historical perspective on this important debate in this, uh, you know, often tense and fraught moment. Um, addressing that disconnect uh, was, I think, really, uh, I think, 
an important thing uh, and and one way that we saw that we might be able to add to the discussion uh, nationally about COVID vaccine mandates. So since we're talking about vaccine mandates, the history of smallpox vaccination is pretty relevant here. Can you guys discuss the background of vaccine mandates and their legal challenges within smallpox? Absolutely. The history around smallpox inoculation has come up often in debates about vaccine mandates today. And I think there are some important reasons to consider why this has happened and what we are or potentially are not highlighting in most of these comparisons. Smallpox has long captured public imagination because of the apparent success of uh, smallpox inoculation. The history of that success, however, is much more complex than we are usually led to believe in popular representations of smallpox mitigation. Often, efforts were not simple, nor were they straightforward. There was no single lever to pull for smallpox inoculation to occur widely, and mandates came from municipalities, school boards, employers, and so forth. Importantly, these efforts unfolded over decades. Additionally, a narrow focus on technological innovation, the inoculation itself, without reference to the kinds of education and advocacy that happened alongside its use, obscures the reasons for wider acceptance of compulsory vaccination. Following on that, I would add that one thing we alluded to in the paper was that people sometimes had important and sincerely held concerns or objections to compulsory use of the vaccine. It is important to emphasize, for example, that scholarship among historians has shown how imposition of mandatory vaccination was not always equitable, and enforcement can sometimes be controversial, even for something as seemingly marvelous as smallpox inoculation. How people work through these problems and resolve these questions about personal liberty and public health still resonate today. And turning to the, the legal side of things, it turns out that there was a lot of litigation about smallpox inoculation mandates more than 100 years ago. And the interesting thing is that the legal cases about smallpox tell a story that's remarkably similar to what's going on today with COVID vaccine mandates and their controversies. You had groups a century ago with names like the Anti-Vaccination Society and the Anti-Vaccination League that would fit right in in 2022, but actually came from the late 1800s. And the lawsuits about the smallpox mandates made the same legal arguments that mandate opponents are making today. So sometimes the opponents argued in court that the vaccines didn't work, that the smallpox vaccines didn't work, and that the risks of permanent harm from the inoculations are too high. But a century ago, just like today, as we'll talk about later, the courts refused to even consider those arguments because that's not what courts do. Courts do not decide whether vaccines are good public health policy. And in fact, like with the COVID vaccine mandates today, the courts a century ago when addressing smallpox did not hesitate at all to say that the government could impose vaccine mandates. The U.S. Supreme Court and state Supreme Courts around the country all said that state legislatures have the power to enact vaccine mandates. Instead, the real legal arguments about the smallpox mandates were about separation of powers. And the key point here is that in America, the legislative branch of government makes the law. Many of the mandates a century ago came from public health boards and school boards and municipalities. So the real question is whether those entities had legislative authorization to require vaccines. Now, the most famous case in this area is Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is a 1905 case from the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Cambridge, Massachusetts required either a smallpox vaccine or you had to pay a fine. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld that mandate because the Massachusetts legislature had authorized municipalities to require vaccines. So because it was legislative auth- legislatively authorized, the court upheld the mandate. But state courts struck down several other mandates from public health boards and schools when the legislature had not authorized them. So the real question is, how specific does the legislative authorization have to be? And I'll, we'll give one example. We had a couple of examples in, in the article, but one example comes from Kansas, where the Kansas Board of Health had the power from the legislature to supervise the health interests of the people of the state. That's a quote, supervise the health interests of the people of the state. But the Kansas Supreme Court held that this was not specific enough for the health board to impose a vaccine mandate. So stepping back, there are some important lessons from the smallpox era that we we really want to bring forward and use as as a tool to consider and look at the current COVID vaccine mandate debates and uh, litigation. The first lesson is that courts don't really entertain questions of public health policy. They are not going to evaluate whether vaccine mandates are the right public health response to a pandemic. The second lesson is that the real fights are about separation of powers and the scope of legislative authority. The courts did not question that the legislature could authorize mandates. The real questions arose when public health agencies and other entities imposed the mandates, and that required careful parsing of what the law allowed. The third lesson is really a consequence of the first two, which is that because of these issues, the smallpox mandates really were a patchwork throughout the country. There wasn't one single switch that somebody flipped and required everyone in America to get a smallpox inoculation. This required action from states, municipalities, public health agencies, schools, employers, and this took time. No one snapped their fingers and immediately required everyone to get a vaccine mandate. It took decades and it took a lot of work from a lot of different entities and a lot of different groups. So while it wasn't really a vaccination, there were also a number of legal actions that led to a decrease in smoking in the U.S., So what can we learn from those efforts to curtail tobacco abuse? Legal interventions have been important uh, historically in addressing smoking, but they also depend on a variety of important factors. These include, uh, first, efforts to organize groups and advocate for these kinds of interventions, which take time and, in the case of smoking, unfolded over many years. Uh, Second, efforts to educate the broader public on the hazards of smoking and the importance of these kinds of legal interventions. Third, as with smallpox, efforts depended on a variety of actors and smoking bans have focused specifically on government buildings, universities, restaurants, bars, public places, and so forth. Some of these were imposed by the government at virtually every level, federal, state, and local. Others by individual establishments, including universities and restaurants. Uh, Lastly, support for change occurred at various levels of government, including eventually congressional authorization for changes Uh, and how the Food and Drug Administration could regulate tobacco, which is seen among many historians of medicine as a seminal with long uh, sought-after event. And and the legal lesson here, I think, is really that widespread change often happens slowly and takes a lot of different actors because of the limits on uh, how our, our system of government works. No one banned smoking completely, but various government entities have taken incremental steps in places within their control. So as you talk about in the paper, 
the federal government banned smoking in federal buildings and on airplanes because the federal government has some level of legal control over those spaces. And some states restricted smoking in public places. Private businesses banned smoking on their premises. But this all unfolded over a long period of time, several decades. So in January of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court issued two different opinions about vaccine mandates, one upholding a mandate and the other one doing the reverse. So can you give us some background on these cases and those decisions and what led to them? So there are two cases that, as you said, were decided on the same day, and they arose from two different mandates. Now, there are a lot of different mandates for COVID vaccines out there in the U.S. right now at almost every level, um, state, local, federal. There are several different types of federal mandates, including those for the military, for federal contractors. Um, But the U.S. Supreme Court cases that we focus on in the article, the only ones that have made it up to the U.S. Supreme Court to date are, are two different mandates. The first one is what I'll call the OSHA case. That mandate came from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And it required vaccinations of employees of most large businesses in the U.S. Uh, I think you had to have 100 or more employees and then you were covered. And this mandate would have covered a lot of people, about 84 million people by one estimate. And the second mandate that made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court is what I'll call the healthcare worker case. This one came from Health and Human Services, and it applied to facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding and required that their employees be vaccinated. Now, as you say, the Supreme Court reached different outcomes in these two cases. It essentially struck down the OSHA mandate, that was a 6-3 vote, but it essentially upheld the healthcare worker mandate, that one was a 5-4 vote. And the real difference between the two opinions is the scope of legislative authorization given to the agencies. In other words, what authority did Congress give OSHA And what authority did Congress give Health and Human Services? The Supreme Court said that OSHA's authority is fundamentally limited to workplace safety, not broad public health measures. Congress did not authorize OSHA to impose a broad vaccine mandate, so that mandate failed. Now, the court did leave open the possibility for OSHA to impose more targeted mandates that have a more direct link to occupational safety like uh, maybe a mandate for particularly crowded workplaces or for researchers who are dealing directly with COVID. But the Supreme Court said essentially that OSHA cannot compel 84 million people to get vaccinated because Congress didn't give them that authority. But on the other hand, HHS, Health and Human Services, has specific congressional authorization to require healthcare facilities to do things that are in the interest of health and safety of patients. And the court said that that authorization, something that is in the health and the interest of health and safety of patients is enough to authorize vaccine mandates for the workers at those facilities, the facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. So the, the, one of the points we wanted to make in the paper is that these outcomes are really similar to the outcomes in the smallpox era 100 years ago. The mandates with legislative authorization were upheld, but mandates without legislative authorization failed. And if you put these 2022 decisions side by side 
with many of the smallpox mandate decisions from the 1800s, they're remarkably similar. And I, I want to point out one of the most important things about these, these decisions. One of the key points to our paper is that not a single justice on the United States Supreme Court said that vaccine mandates are unlawful. Not one. Now, four of the justices voted to strike down both mandates, and they wrote separate opinions explaining why. But even they did not express any support for the view that mandates are unlawful or unconstitutional. And I'll give you one example, which is Justice Gorsuch wrote that the central question we face today is who decides. In other words, he's saying which government entities can authorize which mandates. He's not saying that no government can impose a vaccine mandate on some portion of the public. And this is the same pattern we saw with, with smallpox mandates from a century ago. People who opposed mandates insisted that the government simply can't impose vaccine mandates, and they had sincerely held beliefs on why that was so. But the courts did not give that argument any real consideration. And so really, the interesting thing that we found with all of this is that the debates that are happening in courts don't match the debates that are happening in the public realm or in the media, either now or a century ago. So when considering vaccine mandates and other public health measures, what principles can we look to as a result of all these legal decisions that we've discussed here? From a legal perspective, there are a couple of lessons. And the first is that realistically, this is going to take action by a lot of different actors and and already has involved action from a lot of different actors. So if you want broader coverage by vaccine mandates, it takes effort from municipalities and from state governments, from the federal government and from private employers. It's not something you can do in just one fell swoop in the United States, realistically speaking. And the second lesson is that this takes legislative authorization. You have to trace a mandate back to some kind of of relatively specific authority from a city council or a state legislature or the U.S. Congress. So those are really the key lessons that that we can take away from the smallpox era and from uh, the COVID vaccine mandate cases. And to add on that, from a historical perspective, I think it's important to highlight the complexity of these histories. Uh, to follow up on Eric's points, there are likely to be a variety of actors contributing to wider vaccination, including through mandates. Uh, but the efforts that people undertake to make wider vaccination a reality have to be sustained over time and space if they're going to be successful. Uh, and, and as we've argued in, in the paper, historical examples like smallpox and tobacco uh, bear this out. So where do we go from here? What are the next steps in achieving higher vaccination rates or otherwise hastening an end to this pandemic? So stepping back a little bit from the current debate and reorienting our attention on opportunities for interventions, um, I think highlighting the importance of a multi-pronged effort to mitigate disease is really important, showing how mandates were essential um, and often allowed is important. Um, but also showing how advocacy and organization around these mandates matters a great deal, especially in educating the broader public on the safety and efficacy of vaccines, as well as finding ways to provide vaccines widely and easily. Again, that equity piece that we alluded to earlier. 
As we finish up this discussion, can you guys each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. News, Noyce? The last three years have been nothing if not surprising. And as we watch details about yet another variant emerge, um, I guess I would, would say a couple of things. One, the probability of an ongoing need for vaccination, whether boosted or with new formulations of vaccines, remains relevant to efforts to mitigate the spread of COVID and the severity of illness it causes. Uh, and two, my hope is that telling a more nuanced history of vaccine mandates in the U.S. can enrich the broader conversation that is happening today in the United States. And as a, as a, yeah, as, as a lawyer, I'm a bit of an interloper in your journal. So thank you for having me. Um, and, and I think I'll close by offering a suggestion, which is that if you're interested in this topic, you can read the two decisions from the Supreme Court about the COVID vaccine mandates. And in our paper, we briefly discussed the contours of these two decisions. But I think if you read the actual decisions, you can get a better sense of the issues that the court was grappling with and what the debate was really about. And that's particularly true here because the court reached different conclusions in the OSHA mandate and in the healthcare worker mandate. It takes a really nuanced analysis to say that one mandate can survive and the other one cannot. Um, our article gives the case citations. Uh, so if you, if you look at the article in chest, you can copy those into a search engine and read the opinions for free. Uh, so I guess I'll close by saying if you're interested in the issue, consider looking at those decisions and, and reading the actual opinions from the court. Well, I would like to thank both Mr. Frazier and Dr. Noyce for an interesting and timely discussion. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.